0: Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Merritton. Now, in this show, we're going to tackle one of our modern era's most intriguing concepts, and that is something called the New Spirituality. Now many of us have come across this term because it's been made popular by a number of best-selling authors such as Neil Donald Walsh with with his Conversations with God books, Elkhart Tolle, and even Deepak Chopra and many many others have used the term. It's a term like the term New Age that has a nice feel to it but is hard to define. But what is exciting, at least to me, about the New Spirituality is that the term does in fact describe a real, down-to-earth, guide-your-life change occurring in this world. These are not just marketing slogans, but a term which, perhaps better than any others, describes a change happening in the inner sanctum of our beings. So today's show is entitled The Power of the New Spirituality, and to talk about this topic I'm extremely pleased to have, as a guest, one of the world's leading authorities on the topic, and that's William Bloom, who is joining us today from the United Kingdom. Now, Mr. Bloom is a modern Western mystic and Britain's leading and most experienced mind-body teacher. He's the founder of Spiritual Companions and co-founded and directed the famous alternatives program of St. James Church, Piccadilly, London. For 30 years, he was a senior faculty member of Europe's leading green and spiritual community, the Finehorn Foundation. He's the author of many books, including The influential The Endorphin Effect, Psychic Protection, and most recently, The Power of the New Spirituality. Now, one thing I will add here is that while I was reading his book the, uh, by the same title, I also note that he was the only speaker to be booed at the United Nations 1998 Oslo conference on freedom of belief when he spoke about a new approach to spirituality. Welcome to the show William. Thank you Philip. Well thank you for joining us uh, from from uh, the United Kingdom today and I thought that we could try to press the envelope here and try to explain to the listeners some of some of the features of this thing called the new spirituality and i think to set the table here it's it's important to start off with the question of what is spirituality to begin with and i'd like you to to take a shot at that i know that you teach classes on this topic and so so i i would think that you have uh, from your students and over the years, come to some kind of definition of what spirituality is. So why don't you give that a shot?
1: Okay. So um, first of all, in conversations, when people ask me what spirituality is, I tend to do a little kind of verbal tap dance and try and avoid <laughs> the, uh, the question. Right. Uh, when I'm pinned down, um, there's a definition that we have been using that works in education and healthcare and in government social services because you'll find that in those particular domains uh, what's considered to be good practice has to include the spiritual dimension and the, uh, and there's always uncertainty about what it, what it means but if you take it from within the um those particular domains then this definition may, may work for you and tends to work in the UK. I don't know if it would work in the US. And the definition is spirituality is everybody's natural connection with the wonder and energy of life yeah, that's- and the instinct to explore it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great definition. Mm-hmm. And, I, and what makes it really... I think powerful to me is that it's neutral and it's universal and I think that that's something that is it's hard to debate the, the the point that spirituality is universal I mean would you agree with that I mean it's everybody has their own way of interpreting the concept or 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 um Following it or or experiencing it it, but it seems to me that spirituality is a universal feeling
1: Yes, and, and, if, and if we use a definition as Modern and as wide as that then we can also pull on board the atheists Right, because for example Richard Dawkins would would is continuously saying look the universe is wonderful nature is wonderful just stop making up all these banal stories about how it came into being and what its purpose is. You know, the reality is it's it's wonderful and gorgeous. And that kind of statement, albeit from an atheist, is very reflective of what the mystics of all ages have said. It's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it is mysterious. The mystics never claim to understand its beginning or its purpose. So if we keep the... Um, definitions real with, without overlaying them with any mythology that pretends to understand some of the stuff we simply can't understand then we're beginning to get somewhere.
0: well I, th- I think that that is a important observation because when I read people like Richard Dawkins and even Stephen Hawking and the whole atheist crowd I, I really my question for them would be I understand that you do not believe in the God of the Bible or the God of the Koran. But does that mean that you do not believe in spirituality or in oneness or in nature? And and I, I think that that's a confusion that we tend to have uh, out in our modern culture where we have a lot of people who treat Orthodox religion Like a rag doll, and they and they just shake it around and 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 hit you know hit it on the ground. But when you get to the more important question, which is which is is, therefore, is there nothing inspiring about the world we live in? That to me is a much more difficult question. I I had on the show a couple weeks ago, Dr. Robert Rose, who is a professed atheist. And I asked him that question. I asked him whether being an atheist also ruled out any belief in the oneness of of spirit or the oneness of the world. And he and he backed he backed away on that question because I think you're exactly right. That is that's where the mystery is.
1: Yeah, but of course I mean I think the problem with Richard Dawkins and Co is they're rude and confrontational. But that's precisely the same as fundamentalists on either side. But they've they've stolen the argument. And what we need to do is to reassert that there is a middle ground, and there always was a middle ground, which is not fundamentalist, which was, does not believe in sacred texts word by word, that this is how it all happened, what creation was, and all the rest of it. Because, quite frankly, that stuff is banal, and it is shallow, and it is just human beings' inability to face the unknown that make the the makes them make up these stories. We need to reclaim the ground and simply assert there is a wonder and energy to life. It is worth exploring. It supports the development of human beings in a way that is not materialistic and not selfish. It supports the growth of our hearts and our consciousness and that it is done in a, a reflective, thoughtful way in which we are very careful to explore and reflect on our own bullshit and the fact that we're prone to being naive of making things up. Yeah. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there's a wonder and energy to life that is, that is totally obvious, isn't it?
0: There, there's, a, there's a book, uh, I think it's by Henry Pagels, that I use in my own book where he he's a uh, a scientist a materialist but he he comes right out and says that to the scientists and of course he was speaking for a subset of scientists the laws of nature are God and to me that was something that was that was very revealing because even even at the, at the end of the scientific analysis, there is an order to the universe. There is a wonder to the universe. We, we, we talk about the Hubble telescope being sort of the, the, the uh, epitome of, of technological, achievement giving us these amazing pictures of outer space the galaxies the farthest stars and what we keep seeing are these incredibly beautiful pictures of spiral galaxies and nebula and exploding stars and comets and and so and i i happen to think that that one of the problems we have in our modern world is that the scientists haven't come to terms yet with the, re, with the realization that they don't have an explanation for the order in the world. I mean, Richard Dawkins, you know, to me, I think the best defense is a good offense. The, to me, Richard Dawkins is really closed-minded. You know, he said something in his, in his newest book, I think it's called The Magic of Reality, something very revealing he said in that book which was that he doesn't understand quantum theory and he doesn't understand cosmology well that to me was was telling because in those two fields quantum theory which of course suggests a oneness a connection between mind and matter and then cosmology which has all these incredible mysteries you know where did, how did something come from nothing? How did the Big Bang produce the, the wonders of the world? All these incredible mysteries. You know, if you, if you don't consider those, you know, your view of things is going to be a little short-sighted, a little closed-minded. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a tension going on here, William, that I, you know, between the science and the spiritual uh, fronts, and, you know, my hope and dream is that we find a way to unite the two and I think that the way you framed the issue is is really good because everybody, I think, could find some some truth in it, the way you've interpret the way you've described uh, spirituality. So let's let's take a shot now at what new spirituality is. and and to to sort of frame this next stage here, we're all familiar with the modern statement that when when you ask somebody if they're religious, they say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. And and so I wanted to sort of put that out there before you take a shot at the new spirituality. But to you, what is the new spirituality?
1: Number one, it, it's not religious. In, if, if we define religion as a particular faith community, with a particular set of beliefs and particular ways of worshipping. What the modern world um, has presented us with is huge numbers of people, millions of people, uh, wherever uh, societies are educated and democratic, a huge proportion of the population, maybe up to 70%, according to the figures of the World Values Survey from the University of Michigan, move away from adherence to a particular faith community and adopt a more generalised spirituality. By generalised spirituality, we mean that people know that there is something wonderful and magical about life and there's an acceptance that there are are many ways of exploring it, that there's a diversity of choice. Put, Put rudely when it's the board, it's the supermarket approach to spirituality. Put maturely, it's the option that adults have now to survey many different ways of exploring spirituality and choose the ones that suit them best according to where a person is at that particular stage in their life. And it's not a dumbing down or a shallowing of spirituality. It's actually, the at its best, it empowers and enables autonomous, mature, independent human beings. So, so that's the first thing. There's, there's a huge diversity available now, and mature, independent human beings are taking advantage of it.
0: Well, one of the things that I think could be um, question about the way you frame that is the concept of relativism is, which, which to me would mean that what's, what's right for me is, is true and, and there is no unifying sort of um, under, undertone or, or connection between, between different people's perspective of spirituality in other words we all have our way of getting there sort of like uh, William Jane's The Varieties of Religious ex- Experiences, where what's true for Tom, Dick, and Harry is good for them, but it may not be true for somebody else. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to a criticism that, that, that there's a bit of relativism creeping into this?
1: That's a, that's a really great question. Um, crucially, for people who come out of a faith community, the relativism looks dangerous in the field of ethics and morality. And at its worst, in the New Age movement, there are uh, idiots who suggest that, for example, in a completely amoral way, that people create their own reality to, to such an extent that um, the Jews in Auschwitz asked for it, created their own reality, or the children who are dying in the Sudan Asked for it, there's, there's a lack of morality there. It does indeed come out of a relativism, and there's a lack of compassion and care. At its best, in, in, in the world of uh, ethics and values, I, th- I think the new spirituality is tremendously powerful. It absolutely supports the core ethics of all the world's major religions: do not kill, do not harm be compassionate, be generous, be charitable. It also integrates into them the ethics of the green movement, not just to create a sustainable human lifestyle or to save humanity, but because the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and the sky and the animals and the trees are part of our family. There's a huge green ethic integrated into modern spirituality. And beyond that, there's also a profound psychological ethic, which is that we understand That babies, infants, children, and adults need affection and love in order to develop properly. So to to love your neighbor, to love your family, is no longer a kind of idealistic injunction, but it's an absolute prerequisite for a healthy human being and a healthy society. So the relativism... Uh, the new spirituality. I absolutely understand why people should take a pot shot at us for that, but in actual fact, when you examine where most people within the new spirituality are at, you find a very, very powerful morality. Um, so that, that's one of the easy targets dismantled, I hope. Yeah, Can I go on to a second easy target or not?
0: Yeah, that's good. This is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with William Bloom, a leader in the new spirituality field, joining us today from the UK, author of the recent book, The Power of the New Spirituality, and we're about to talk about another aspect of the new spirituality. Uh, go, go ahead, William.
1: But what I was going to say, another easy talk, because you asked the question about the relativism of uh, the new spirituality i.e., each individual can make it up for themselves and therefore because of that there's no no depth or tradition or morality in it or practice or deep practice. Now the reality is what one of the, th- the other things the new spirituality does It's it's identified the core practices that you will find at the heart of all spiritual traditions and their approaches. So, so for example, it doesn't matter whether you're a Kabbalist or a yogi or a Catholic celebrant, or uh, a Sunni um, on, an, on a pilgrimage to Mecca, um, or a shamanic type from Central Africa, when people seek to connect more fully with spirit, I, I to have a fuller experience of the wonder and energy, there are certain elements that all people do. They include relaxing down into your body, becoming mindful of the situation, uh, centering in a grounded and calm way and opening oneself yielding becoming empty surrendering to the experience now those are common strategies which are not the lowest common denominator of spiritual practice but the highest common factor and the fantastic mixture of of, of body oriented therapies movement dance yoga Uh, Tai Chi, martial arts, um, all that stuff mixed in with meditation, psychology. They're all helping us, in actual fact, to develop Mm. those particular skills. And far from it being individualistic and therefore completely relativistic, Mm. there is a common understanding in spiritual teachers today from all traditions that their students, regardless of what particular tradition they're rooted in need these common skills of being able to be centered, mindful, relaxed in the face of spirit, surrendering to it and so on. So the again that's the second big target of relativism and and it falls down.
0: Well, I, I think that the it's easy to take pot shots at anything. I mean one of the one of the features of our society today and we both live in democracies is freedom of speech. And there seems like there is a forum for anybody between Twitter, Facebook, blogging, the mass media. I mean, if you have an opinion, there is a place where you could voice it. And, of course, in democracy, just like in science and in logic and in law, you, you have, and in philosophy, you hope that the best opinion prevails in the end. And so... It's not unusual to me that people take pot shots at, at, at the new spirituality, or the new age for that matter. But I, I think that there is a commonality or a common theme to spirituality, and I think it all begins with you know, what Aldix Huxley said about the perennial philosophy, that, that the, the core belief is that, is that there is a unity. It's sort of, I mean, the way I look at it is that uh, we would be drops in an ocean. The drops don't realize that they're part of the ocean. And, so, and, and over time, they realize that they are. And But they all have their own way of getting there, of, of realizing it. And, and so that is why I think, and I've seen this before, and, I've, and I saw this in your book, the only way, in my opinion, that the new spirituality is going to survive, endure, is if it if its teachings are consistent with the historical tr- spiritual traditions because those historical spiritual traditions are so deeply rooted in what we are and i and, and by that i would mean the ten commandments uh the golden rule the eightfold path of the buddha uh and so many other you know the, the sayings of confucius all those things there's so much truth to those, uh, maybe maybe centered on on the golden rule, that that all I think that we're saying in this movement is that when you strip away sort of the outer clothes and the and the traditions and the rituals, you have this core set of 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 ideas which you've articulated in the beginning of the show that that everybody tends to share. And, and i think that, that that is i think that's a real exciting component about this modern age because i'm seeing more and more people sort of realizing that maybe maybe reading the these these historic texts literally is, is not is not the right thing to do maybe maybe there is a a inner path that arrives at the same place so one of the things that you do in your in your book and I think you you briefly mentioned it but you talk about these three golden keys to spirituality and 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 again in in your new book which I which I would highly recommend the power of the new spirituality I mean what you do there is you not only talk about the new spirituality but you give real practical advice to the folks and I think that's what Really separates that book from many others, but but you you do emphasize the three golden keys. Now, what are those?
1: Um, well, they're the, my way of formulating what I think is cooking in spirituality. That they're not engraved in cement, but it's it's a kind of an approximation of what people who claim to be spiritual are kind of doing or ought to be doing. One of them, and we've, we spoke about that a few minutes ago, is you need to be living a life of service. Ethics, being being aligned with the flow and the movement of all that's good in the universe, and having that emerge through one's own life at, at home with neighbours, at work, ethic. Live a life that's of service. Guide your life so that your livelihood is does good and doesn't do harm. The second element which I think is actually at the very core of spirituality, is are you connected with the wonder and energy of life? So whenever anybody presents themselves to me as being spiritual, actually the first thing I'm curious about is what are they doing on a daily basis that connects them with the wonder and energy? I'm, look, I'm looking to see if they've got periods of time in their, in their day where they're purely doing nothing except connecting with the wonder and energy. And I really don't mind how they do it, but I do like to see people doing it. It's almost as if I'm a fundamentalist here. Yeah. In my classes and long-term courses, um, that's the one thing where we take no prisoners. After a little while, we need everybody to be in some kind of daily practice. Where they're just doing nothing except experiencing their relationship with the wonder and energy. And in our language, soaking. Soaking in the hot tub of spirit. Soaking in the uh, hot tub of the goddess. Just having the full experience and feeling it. Actually allowing themselves to feel it. So that would be the second golden key. That's connecting with the experience. The first is the service and morals. The second is connection and having the experience. And the third is, is reflection. And that is developing that part of your psyche, mind, consciousness that's able to, with compassion and some good humor, step back from who you are and watch what's cooking in your life and manage it and reflect on it, unpack it, explore it, make some decisions about how to move forward. It's um, the growth of consciousness. Um It's interesting, for instance, if one uses a reflective mind, then, for example, I would even question a statement like the unity of all life, the oneness of all life, because what I would actually notice in my reflective mind is, okay, when I'm in a certain mood, when I'm in my samadhi, when I'm meditating, it feels like everything's connected. But if I'm thinking about it, how do I actually know? It's a mystery. There may be dimensions... I have no idea about that with which we're not connected, right? And it's it's an openness to reflect on unknowing. Uh, one one of the core tenets we have in our, our classes is you have to be un, you have to be very very comfortable with unknowing sometimes too, because that's the only guarantee of uh, creative freedom in your consciousness. And the moment people get caught up in a a, a particular belief. And, and you know, Philip. I, I, you know, if, if we're having a challenging conversation, I'd love to challenge your your your, your assertion that everything is unified and connected, right? Because maybe it isn't. Maybe, well, maybe it isn't. You know, you know. Well, maybe it's not, just our experience. Well. well but, but 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 let me just. My point so is good. not that I'm right or you're wrong. My point is that in a healthy spiritual community, we're free to have a, a, a relaxed and wise conversation at this level of reflectivity.
0: Yeah, I think that that's one of the differences between science and religion and also to a the similar extent science and spirituality. And I think this is this is one of the problems that we're having right now in the debate. And that is science will say that that it is a a truth-seeking enterprise where hypotheses undergo this testing, measurement, challenge, and the best theory survives, sort of, sort of like a natural selection of ideas. In spirituality, and more so in, in organized religion, we have this, this uh, attitude where we respect but don't question other people's beliefs and and that that sort of there's this tension here and I think this this is something that Dawkins picks up on and and that and that crowd where where people are set in their ways with their with their beliefs and I I raise this because this question about unknowing I completely agree that there is a mystery to the universe and I don't think anybody would disagree with that Uh, even the hardcore uh, materialistic science scientists uh, concede that they don't know anything but I or everything but I do think that even in spirituality it's our task our challenge to know as much as we can to not to accept the unknowing but to advance the ball into and to shrink what we don't know. Now, having said that, I want to make myself clear. I, I, I am a firm believer that we'll never know everything. <laughs> but I don't think we should give <laughs> up. <sure> that. <laughs> I, I don't think we should give up either.
1: Oh, no, sure. So, but you know, it's, it's, it's the Russian doll of all questions, isn't it? It's like, who created it, or who created it that created it, and who created that which created that which created it. It's like, there the, are the, the certain levels of origin that, you know, as, as the great mystics have always said, unknowable, completely unknowable, right. absolutely and completely unknowable, right? Right. right? Our consciousness can't go there. Right. And it's that level of mystery that I'm, I like a right.
0: lot. Right, and there, it, it's really amazing that so many spiritualists, philosophers, and scientists come to that point. And I, I always think back about Aristotle uh, who who went down this path and came up with the concept of a prime mover. you know what ultimately creates the world? Well something that has to have the ability to move things, to generate energy to to uh, create a universe but is but itself is uncreated. And he called it the prime mover and there's it's it's very similar to, to the the unknowable god in the upanishads and i i think it's it's similar to the big bang theory frankly because nobody really explains where that thing came from and and so there is that underlying mystery it's called by different names this is this is philip meritan this is conversations beyond science and religion we're speaking with william bloom from the uk about the new spirituality and we're going to shift a little bit here to the age of Aquarius because it 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 dawned on me as I was reading your book that you talked about what you learned from the 60s and and the flower power and I take it you you are um out of that era as well just like me is that is that true?
1: I I I, I did an, I graduated from high school in Joint Rollingness.
0: Yes, and so it's so and you remember, I take it, the sort of the the uplifting spirit of that era, and there was so much, you know, energy, uh, up and about, you know, a new world, uh, you know, a revolution, uh, and you know, it was called all sorts of different things, and you know, maybe the Age of Aquarius. Now, do you think that there's anything from that era that is still enduring?
1: Other than you and me and Ramdas, <laughs> uh, and all the other old hippies, um, yeah. but of course you, you you look like a corporate lawyer on your uh, thank you. Pictures. Thank you. Congrat- congratulate you on the metamorphosis. Um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I, I I tell you, you, you know, we were talking about the mystery, right? But you know, there's something underlying all that, beneath all that, which is also core to spirituality and which is is another argument and that that is about the fact that the wonder and energy of the universe has a benevolence to it it's good that when, when people connect with the wonder and energy when they're on, you know ordinary people when they're on holiday ordinary people just going through their lives when they just know that there's a, there's a magic to life, there's a sense of, even with all the suffering and psychopathy and stupidity of humanity, can you hear my dogs in the background? I don't know what they've found to bark at. Even with all the terrible behavior and suffering of humanity, nevertheless, there is something loving and beautiful and wonderful about life. Now, that's a separate argument, isn't it? Yep. From mystery and origins, and it's it's an experiential knowing. In the sixties, as we seem to dismantle all the uh, rigid, straightjacket stuff of sexism and ageism and lots of stereotypes got broken down. It it went hand in hand with many of us having, without doing much spiritual work, having an experience of the fact that the universe is loving, white light experiences of how wonderful and extraordinary life was. And I I think that's remained with a lot of people. Um, I think that's what's remained in my heart, that uh, in tandem with the mystery, in tandem with me saying, oh, you must get on with your ethics, oh, you must get on with your spiritual practice, or oh, you must get on with your reflection, in tandem with all that and underpinning it all is a sense that the universe is benevolent, filled with, if you like, love. Um, and um, was the 60s an eruption of that? I don't know. I, I, where, where are you at on this?
0: Well, I, I think that the 60s, I think that there was a sort of a mass... Sort of movement in that that question authority, that question many of the traditional beliefs in politics, religion, race, upbringing, culture, that that was a point of no return. I think for a lot of people, there there it 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 never it didn't um, conclude like some. People thought it might but I think that we reached a point there where where we crossed a bridge and I think that the and I think what did it was the mass of people you know we were so led by by music uh, you know that that was the era of the Beatles the Rolling Stones a lot of the a lot of the um, you know re, re, uh, rebellious music of that age uh, Jefferson Airplane, all all these groups that were that were questioning the politicians, and I think it gave you know gave the young people a voice. But I think that a lot of the those old those old constricting beliefs were were broken. Now I think I still think we're picking up the pieces, and I think that a lot of folks from that era, uh, the two of us uh, excluded. Uh, you still have to make a living, but but I I do think that the the mindset uh, of of uh, culture of the world was changed, and I think we're still undergoing that change. See, I I'm hopeful that the dream of the 60s will someday come to fruition. That's that's what I'm about. I'm about trying to make it real. Uh, I haven't given up the quest. And, and so, so I think it was a very powerful time. And I think when you talk to people from that era who were, who were really into it, I think most of them would say the same thing. I, I, don't, I think a lot of people have not given up. So that's my sense.
1: Yeah, I, I, I absolutely, uh, obviously like your idealism. I, I see um, several particular ways in which it has um, emerged. If you trace back barely 50 years, um, techniques of, of, like yoga and tai chi, visualization, lots of meditation, they were only ever taught in private, one-to-one or in very, very small groups. They're now part of mass culture in one way or another. Um, so strategies to do with breath and relaxation to do with um, body sensations and mindfulness in order to um, enhance your health. Those things that were previously profoundly esoteric are now mainstream. Yes. Uh, Fifty years ago, um, ideas to do with the way in which energy um, follows thought were considered dangerous um, certain visualization techniques were considered dangerous. There was a whole, I mean, barely 100 years ago, the, the idea that energy follows thought was, was considered a great secret, a grand arcanum that people never learned about public. And all, all that is now, you know, may the force be with you. Right. It's again part of the public domain. Um, within healthcare, in nursing, in schools, um, there's an approach to religion and philosophy and citizenship which is multicultural diverse um, I think that's where our people are that's where our ideas have grounded uh, I think the whole way in which the web works especially web 2 uh, which emerged, emerged to a degree out of the same areas of California where the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane emerged uh, around Stuart uh, whatever his name was and the whole earth catalog and all that stuff right. um, that has grounded into the way the Huffington Post works, for example, the biggest online newspaper, the huge ways in which this has all emerged. And what's happening in the UK at the moment is that the language of, and all of this has been a democratization of experience and of exploration and of communications. And that, that's spilling over into religion and spirituality. Um in the next few months, for example, my team will be going into one of the largest hospice groups in the UK to um, do a training of all their staff, that's 1,300 people, in a modern approach to spirituality because they know that a holistic approach to spirituality needs to be integrated into their healthcare programs. Yeah, that's um, there's, there's a lot that's, I, I don't think, it sounded as if you, we're almost from the 60s and waving, you're kind of like a, on a desert island and you're left alone as a hermit. But I, but I, I think, it, in actual fact, it's, it's actually embedding itself quite deeply and generally into culture. Yeah, and and, I, I, and I can't
0: agree. I, I, I really agree. I think that's, that is the most promising sort of observation about our new age. I think, and it's sort of like a tidal, a slowly moving tidal wave, because you know I mention a lot on this show that heck, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, if you went to the, I don't, know if there was a New Age section of the bookstore, but but there was the Tower of Physics, there was the dancing Wulu Masters, and I guess there was the Celestine Pro- Prophecy, and now there are so many. Books written on this topic, on the topic of spirituality, connections between uh, quantum theory and spirit. Then you have, as you mentioned, uh, Lynn Mctaggart and the field, uh, her book. And then there's Bernard Hash uh, uh, writing about, um, you know, uh, the new approach to God and conversations uh, with God. And Neil Donald Walsh, my own book, "The Heaven at the End of Science." and and there's there's so much it's sort of like uh everybody is maybe we're we're tapping something inside of us but i think we're also tapping sort of this unspoken desire to understand to understand uh ourselves and our world better and i don't think there's any doubt as you just mentioned with your hospice example which is a really good project a great project that the spiritual approach is slowly eroding upon the materialistic approach. It's not going the other direction.
1: I think I'd like to add here um, a point about how we conduct this conversation with the mainstream. Um, I've, I've learned to be very, very careful about keeping spirituality distinguished from metaphysics. Um, which is to say that there are two separate debates here. One debate is to do with the wonder and magic of life, which is is an easy domain in which to find common ground. And that's the way we're finding common ground that allows us to integrate into education and healthcare, for example, and community care and building social capital. There's another debate which is in the world of ideas and paradigms, and this debate is to do with metaphysics. And the metaphysical debate is essentially a debate between mainstream science, in which it says you can only know that something is there because you have the instrumentation to measure it, and metaphysics, which says we live in a world of energies and beings that influence us and which we influence us, and which we influence and that's the greater reality. Now, I have found it very, very important to keep this debate about prana, chi, angels, spirits, uh, reincarnation, other dimensions separate from spirituality. And when the two meet, people get very confused and can get very provoked I know if I go into a hospital, if I go into university, I can talk about the wonder and energy of life, the the, the joie de vivre. And I can talk about the growth of one's heart and one's consciousness. But the moment I go into the metaphysical debate, which is to do with prana and chi and other beings and other planes, that's when the problems start. And so I tend to keep them completely separate. If you look at the big debate in healthcare, for example, between mainstream medicine and integrative medicine or holistic medicine or whatever you call it, the actual source of that debate is does prana exist? And I don't want to get caught up in that debate.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Th- this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Uh, we're speaking to William Bloom from the UK about metaphysics and spirituality and whether they should be uh discussed at the same time or together. Now let me let me tell you I I happen to think that there there we have a great confusion out there on the term metaphysics and we covered this a couple shows ago but but if you go back into the history of metaphysics metaphysics is really a world view and and you know I I uh, Metaphysics, as you probably know, was really uh, the the name of Aristotle's book that came after his book on physics. Uh, and I think his later collaborators called, you know, named his his following book, Metaphysics, to mean after physics. But from a philosophical standpoint, it really to me, it really is a worldview. And so I use it. Cause, because I think, I think materialism is a, is a metaphysics and I think idealism is a metaphysics and there are, there are other metaphysics but those are the two big ones you either have everything's matter, everything's mind or you have people who are, who are in between, a little of both I would agree that we don't need to solve the metaphysical issue to talk about spirituality I would agree with that and 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 you have a lot of experience doing this, and so I would not question question the way you handle it. But I do think that really to solve the problem, we need to solve the metaphysical problem, and, and, and I mean the deep philosophical question, which is: Are we? Is it all matter, all mind, or is it something in between? Now, that's not really, you know, we don't have time to get into that, obviously, but but. One of the points that we've made on this show that I would agree with and emphasize is that even even whether it's idealism or materialism, you, you wind up with a wonder of the world. <laughs> because <laughs> idealism, the question is, well, if all is mind then how did this world come to be? If all is matter, you ask, well, how did this world come to be if all is matter? So... So you you wind up with the same sort of appreciation for the wonder of the world. I mean, that's my that's my two cents on that topic.
1: Uh, yeah, but I, 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 I was an activist in the '60s. I, I was, you know, my, my I was both, a, a, you know, a hippy dippy, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I was a street act, activist and part of community politics and. And um, so I am still engaged in the transformation of society. And therefore, I I look for where there's traction. And what I notice is that in a dumbed-down metaphysics, uh, by which I mean um, the general acceptance nowadays of uh, angels, reincarnation, energy follows thought, and all that kind of stuff, right? Right which was considered um, witchcraft in the early 60s and the work of the devil. That's how that's how much the paradigm has changed. The worldview has changed generally, right? Right. I'm, and I was excited when people started talking the language of what I call metaphysics, which is slightly lighter than your um, philosophical uh, definition of it. I was excited, but what I noticed, there's been no change of morality. There's been no change in social engagement that that... Because people believe in reincarnation, because people understand there are planes of consciousness, that because people know there are angels and spirits there, that has not gone hand in hand with any social engagement and or social justice. Uh, just just as in India, the caste system yeah. was was you know was just a a, a dumbing down and a a, a very nasty uh, effect of reincarnational theory, right? Mm. So there's, there's no traction there for social change. What I do notice, though, is that if we speak the language of the wonder of life, the growth of compassion, the expansion of the heart, the development of a reflective consciousness which is open to unknowing and takes on board all the understandings of modern psychology and, um, and social theory that, that we're beings that are created by our psychology and our society and we can transcend it and think about ourselves and be reflective and guide ourselves in a way that's wise or wiser. You know, there is traction there. That engages and it's relevant to those domains where we actually can have some influence so I've, I, I don't give a toss, I, don't give, I really don't give a toss about um, what the intellectual hegemony thinks about us. I don't care what the intellectual scientists and the people on television who run the intellectual chat shows from the Washington Post and New York Times think. Wh- what I care about and where our influence can be spread is in education, in healthcare, in social services, in pastoral care. And inside all those movements, the kind of stuff that we began to synthesize in the 60s to do with diversity, to do with the importance of experience, to do with the importance of being, able, being creatively free to explore, to do with having some joy and fun in the development and diversity, right. um, all of that stuff I see as actually um, incarnating. Grounding into society. It's partly because people like us are now professors and CEOs of um, schools and healthcare organisations and, you know, and universities. And I, I'm, you know, look at my books. You'll see that I've written a book on angels. You'll see that I've written a book on psychic protection. So, I'm, So as a person, I'm experientially deep into energy work, deep into that whole tradition. But... I absolutely notice that if I want to be of some service in society, that's that's that right. stuff um, isn't getting any traction, and it's and it's appropriated by the forces of capitalism into into get rich quick schemes. You know, uh, the, the books like The Secret, films like The right. Secret, other trash. I'm sorry to be so judgmental. I shouldn't say that about that book, should I? Because it was a gateway for many people. But you know, the, it is a commercialization of metaphysics that's taken over to a degree, and I, so there's no traction there for the moment. So I'm, I'm off on a rant here. Philip, no, you better no, stop I, me.
0: I think it's. I think you know, it's it's very stop me now. It's very interesting to me because I view myself as an activist. I think the purpose of this show, my purpose of the show, is to bring these ideas down to earth for the general public and and to ultim, and two sort of open minds and broaden perspectives, but all those words don't mean a lot. Just like talking about angels and fairies and UFOs, that's that's it's it's stimulating, but, but I think what you're saying is that unless it brings about change Unless it makes us better people, it really doesn't have the power, the purpose that it was intended to have. It becomes a, a pastime as as opposed to a, an agent of change and and so frankly, I think that the best way to make a person a better person and and this would be uh, gang members, terrorists, criminals, is to make him or her appreciate the depth of the wonder of the world. And, and I think that's what you're I mean, that, that's my view of it. I mean, we, there's so many folks that don't have the time or never had the chance that that there is this incredible mystery underlying the world we live in. And when you sink down, as you said before, soak in the spirit or soak in the unknowing. When you get down there, it's all you. I don't think you ever come out. <laughs> I think you realize that you know. I think you're chained forever.
1: Well, I would hope so.
0: So, so I, I think that that I think that is, uh, and and so what you're doing, which is bringing this, you know, to the masses as a practical you know in a practical way with exercises with finding commonality I think that that is really you know incredibly important now I wanted you to talk a little bit I think you may have have um, mentioned it already but in your article in quest magazine you have this line that caught my attention and i think that your the the title of your article is called uh, what not another new age yeah no oh, i'm sorry not another new age there's a there's a line in there that says that the major cosmic narrative is that spirit is incarnating into matter now can you elaborate upon that a little bit or or is that exactly what you've been saying <laughs>
1: i I can re- be reflective for a moment and realise that I, I, in, in what I am uh, answering your question, I'm taking myself away from the way I would normally talk in healthcare <laughs> education. This, these are my personal beliefs that may be wrong, but they make sense to me of how I experience life, the way I and and this this experience and this interpretation comes from the Upanishads and the secret doctrine, Alice Alice Bailey, and from Esoteric Christianity, and from Rudolf Steiner. And it simply says, if we are all souls in incarnation, then as souls, we are in some way connected and involved in a collective endeavor. And that collective endeavor is that we as a great swarm, great cloud of spirit are incarnating into Earth in order to bring a particular resonance, vibration deep into the material and matter of our physical bodies. And that vibration, that resonance, we tend to call love or benevolence or compassion. So that is the cosmic narrative for human beings, that we're monkey apes, creatures, very much of the flesh, very much of our hormones and instinct, yet within us we are fired up by our consciousness, which is our souls, which carries a different vibration seeking to penetrate. So, my journey, just as your journey, Philip, and anybody else's journey, is simply one of being able to embed and incarnate love. So, so where do you think this narrative is heading?
0: So, where, where is this narrative heading?
1: Well, where it's heading for me is that those of us who, and this can happen unconsciously as much as consciously, individually it's heading towards many of us having an experience of, at times of being fully in our bodies and at the same time benevolent and loving, even though we may still be neurotic and have various shadow aspects still bubbling around in us that we can experience this love at a cellular level and many of us do and i'm deeply hopeful because of the amount of body work and body awareness that's going on across the planet and all kinds of therapeutic approaches and educational approaches and my experience is that as soon as you have one person in a room whose body is relaxed, uh, grounded in hara, as I say, in martial arts, and has a sense of benevolence because the soul is fully incarnate and you're connected with the benevolence that permeates the universe, that mm-hmm. that spills over to make other people s- feel safer. And when we're looking, as you said earlier, the guys who come out of gangs and everything, what they need in the first place before they're asked to connect with the universe is they need people like us with them who model and demonstrate what that connection is like.
0: And I, I think that at the, the end of the, the end of your article, I, mean, I think that you, you talked about this topic, and I think that you said it very well, which is that you said that imagine a society filled with people who have love anchored and radiating from their bodies and are conscious and awake, and then you say that would be a new age and and I, th- and I think that that's really where I'd like to conclude here which, which is that all of this talk about the new age and new spirituality uh, on the level I hope that we've addressed today uh, makes it real that this is something that's really occurring out in the world that there aren't all, that we don't have all the answers but that we have I think more and more people being led by people like William Bloom who are realizing the wonder the energy of the world called by different names but ultimately it's gonna have value and impact when it brings about real change and specifically when we start treating each other better uh, William I'd like to thank you for your time why don't you quickly mention how folks could find out a little bit more about you in your books
1: well, that's, that's easy. Williambloom.com. William Bloom is one word. Williambloom.com. And thank you so much for this very engaging conversation.
0: Well, well, thank you very much, and this is Philip Merton, This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Joseph Gallagher about Inner Vegas. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Merritton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com.